Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, the training set for every super skeptical large language model. They gotta train them on cynicism, don't they, Will? With the ever-critical independent <laughs> analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and economist, author, music geek, unrelenting statistics nerd, and all-around great guy Will Page, that's you. And if it was a bubble that burst, we pricked it first. This week, we will put Will on the hot seat and review all his amazing work deep diving into the economics of the music industry, something that is actually a lot smaller than everyone imagines, but it still touches us all deeply. We'll be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, Will, I'm really... I want to start out saying I'm super pissed off with you. You go and drop this fascinating well, why? new Why? Because I beat you at 10K? Uh, yeah, well, that's, and then you woke up. Yeah, you go and drop some fascinating new work on Dan Runcie's Trapital podcast. I mean, boy, that guy has a voice that could melt butter in the Icelandic winter. He is so smooth. But you drop this amazing work about super fans, and it really got me thinking. It, you know... I want to hear all about this super fan idea because it seems to have taken over the music industry. And I feel like after last week's podcast, we're living through this super stocks phenomenon. We're literally in the last year, all of the stock market performance came from seven out of 500 stocks. And, you know, if that's not long tail that you always talk about, I don't know what is, but back it up and tell us a little bit. How are super fans taking over this music machine mentality? Why is it the word of the year for all these CEOs where last year it was AI? I think we have to do a little bit of history here to give us context. We've had 23 years of streaming from the birth of Rhapsody in late 2001, just after 9-11, right the way up to present. In those 23 years, pretty much we've seen the 999 price point for getting money in, and we've seen the pro rata distributional model for getting money out. Now, pro rata is jargon. Let's de-jargon that for a second. It makes our model so simple, even drummers can understand it. That is, if you get 1% of all the streams in Britain last month, you're going to get 1% of all the cash generated in Britain last month. The point is we pool revenues. Now, part of pooling is that you get the law of averages playing out. That is, every song is worth the same. Mm. Sleep music, the sound of rain falling on your roof, which there's plenty of on Spotify, will all be worth the same as Blank Space by 1989 or Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. They all get that same half cent per stream. The benefit is it's simple, it's scalable, it's served us really well. The cost is it's communism. We know some songs are worth more than others. We know some fans are worth more than mm. others. And for 23 years, we've been in a straitjacket 
where we've been unable to know who those songs are and who those fans are. I think that's the historical context you need to hear, Richard, is we're now beginning to get out of that straitjacket and explore fandom. A lot of those fans still pay $9.99, like all those other fans. And how do you discern, how do you find out who those super fans are, especially since we are now past the point where we still believe in the tooth fairy or the creator economy, you know, that we're not just sort of walking around the world <laughs> handing out fivers and tenors to every bit of music we like, we just, we'd all be bankrupt. Hey, don't diss the tooth fairy. I've ditched the creator economy, but I still I got know. my WJ. You, your tooth youngest fairy. daughter probably still believes that, you know, maybe the tooth fairy exists, but I know dad slips the tenor onto the pillow. But let's get down to it. How do you express this idea of super fans in economic terms? I mean, are these people willing to pay a hundred pounds, a 200 pounds, 300 pounds a month to listen? Are they getting something special? Where do you see the superfan economy, not just the people who are crazy and wait outside in the rain for their star to come out of the dressing room? So if we go back to the model we've had for two decades, let's just make a couple of very succinct points. One, after 23 years, I still can't compensate my favorite artists directly on these platforms. And two, perhaps more importantly, I still can't communicate with them. Absolutely. And if you can't tick those two boxes you can see the restlessness on the consumer side, on the creator side. How do we get closer? Mm. How do we get intimacy mm. going on? Perhaps that then takes us to the work that we published last week, which has just gone viral, soundcloudrockonomics.com. But what SoundCloud did was he had the user-centric model. Think of it as a fan club. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ring fence Richard Kramer's 10 bucks a month to just Richard's music. And I'm going to ring fence our producer, Eric Newsom's $10 a month to just his music. And when you introduce that model you get fan distribution. You get to see how much of Richard's time was spent streaming The Who and how much was spent streaming anything uh, else, Taylor yep. Swift. Yep. But we can identify fan distribution. We can see that he is a super fan of The Who by looking at his allocation of his own £10. We didn't pool the money. We concentrated around his own behavior. Then I established Richard as a super fan. So the first point is this model that SoundCloud have, we call it user-centric, they call it fan-powered, this ring fencing of money to my music allows us to identify superfans. Rich is a superfan and who? Now, can I then communicate with him and do something with that information right. to the next chapter? So in that, stand, in that case, my 10 pounds a month, if I just listen to those two artists, five would go to one artist and five would go to the other. And that's it. Based on your listening time. Right. Based on your listening time. Right. But let's remember how it works at present. If I'm a light listener on a streaming platform, let's say five, six hours a week, and you're up high on MDMA all night and you're streaming 22 hours a day, every day of the week, then your heavy listening is being subsidized by my light listening, mm -hmm. meaning my money is going to music that I never listen to. I don't listen to The Who. Richard does, mm -hmm. but my royalties are going to pay for his overusage. What we do now is we see your money to just your music right. and we see the super fans as a result. So let me try to get a concrete example of this with you know, the lady who's on everyone's lips, Taylor Swift. She's having one of 78 songs streamed in the U.S. was from her last year, right? She's dominating not just the charts, but the charts to an unprecedented level of dominance. More streams than jazz and classical combined. <laughs> exactly. So does she get one seventy-eighth of all the revenue collected by all the music services in the U.S. if she's in the pool and if she's in this artist-centric model? She gets that from the pool, but let's imagine if there are some people who go to Apple, to Spotify, to Amazon, YouTube, and only stream Taylor Swift. Well, they should see more of their money 
going to Taylor than there are at present because there's no subsidizing anyone else. So that light listener who only listens to Taylor Swift would give all their money to Taylor. So there's a good chance under this model, she would be even richer. So is this going to make the rich richer? And for all of that incredible long tail of wonderful artists and songwriters who complain endlessly, and you hear them complain and you're sympathetic to them that they can't make a living off of these music streaming platforms. Is this model just a way for the cream to rise even further to the top? Looking backwards, one conclusion could have been you're going to make the rich richer, those who join Spotify to just stream Drake, those who join Apple Music to just stream Taylor Swift, and you'll make local language repertoire richer too. That is, there could be a lot of light users in Denmark who only stream Danish language music. That money would now go to the Danish language music. So you get this kind of weird effect of down in the tail of some action, up at the head of some action, but most of it gets lost. Mm. Now we've seen it in practice, and this is a key thing. When you change the rules of music, you change how the game is played. In your world, when you change the rules of financial markets, reporting, you know, accounting standards, regulation, compliance, you change how the game is played. But when you change our rules, which is what SoundCloud did, you watch a different game get played. And what could an artist do when they know who those super fans are with regards to, I can't live off my streaming royalties, but I can do something else. I can get vinyl out to those fans. I can get tour tickets out to those fans. I can upsell them Mm. beyond the street jacket of 999, smashing that ceiling and getting much more value from those fans. And you're talking about them setting up some sort of back channel communication with their fans in a way that in the old days, you used to mail in a letter to a fan club of your favorite artist. And now you're saying that those artists can reach out to their audiences directly and engage them. Well, let me give a hat tip to Fred Goldring here, legendary Hollywood lawyer, now working with the company Pressing Business, a vinyl pressing plant in Poland, bizarrely. But when we worked with Travis Scott last year, the goal there was to press up 500,000 double vinyls. Mm-hmm which were retailing direct to fan for $49.99. You don't see 50 bucks off a fan on Spotify, put it that way. Now, the key thing is, and we can get out of the rabbit hole of music and out to where our audience works, is he did it pre-album release. So he knew. So those diehard fans could order, express their affinity before the album had been dropped by committing $50 to this artist, more than they would ever commit on Spotify in their life. And he's shifted well over half them before the tour began. And the margin is absolutely gigantic. Now, how do you sell a theatre? You'd like to sell it expensive seats at the front first, cheap seats at the stalls back because it helps with cash flow. Mm. The same thing works in your world of finance. He worked the distribution. So there is an application of what's going on in our world to your world for sure. Right. So you did mention one element of this local content. And I have to, again, take you to task, Will. You invented, uh, uh, you might have unearthed, but then you invented a word that just doesn't really trip off the tongue, glocalization. Now, I understand how much it expresses and there's such a powerful trend behind it, but it's just so hard to say. But I, (laughs) it just makes me just, you know, I get a little dyspeptic. But why don't you talk over glocalization because it's so fascinating to see how People are turning away from this, maybe Taylor Swift is the exception to the rule, but this sort of American cultural imperialism, this hegemony of the big 
labels that have the tentpole famous global artists, and they're looking for their local artists. Yeah, maybe they go back in time to show where the word came from. It's quite telling. A professor of sociology, not economics, okay. sociologist, you didn't Roland Robertson, who is no, no Roland Robertson. I can't blame you. I can't take you to task uni- for that one. <laughs> he taught at the University of Aberdeen, bizarrely. And his observation in 1995, were you in America in 1995? I was already over here. here. Right. So he was looking at America and he looked at the Korean population in Los Angeles. He said, why are the Koreans not going to McDonald's and Starbucks as if the world was flat, which is globalization? Why are they going to Korean delis and Korean restaurants instead? That's localization, but they're not in Korea, they're in Los Angeles. And that's where he can take the blame for merging this tongue-twisted hybrid word globalization because you had local champions in a global marketplace. Flip it to my world, and what do you make of the fact that the top 10 in Germany last year were all German bands, and the top 10 in Poland were all Polish acts, and the top 10 in France were all French and acts, Italy, and, and the top and, yeah. 40 in Italy were all Italians singing in Italian, not one word of English right. language. Spain, it's all Spanish language, but admittedly all Latin American. Why is Europe turning its back on the English language? And I think it's devolving the power away from the global head offices of the streaming services and the record labels down to the satellite offices and empowering the consumer. When we had radio, you got get, you, had to, you take what you were given. I'm going to play the song on radio and you'll have to listen to it. And you can talk about it in a water cooler on Monday morning. Mm. Now with streaming, you decide what you want and you vote your attention. And what Europeans want is music that's closest to them in their local mother tongue. And Go back to Sweden. 10 years ago, Swedish bands were doing great singing in English. Those same bands now are singing in Swedish. But you had a fascinating old stat that we were talking about before the show and when we were prepping that in Germany, the top 10 or top 100 on radio are not localized because that's being picked by a programmer, presumably influenced by what the record company wants him to him or her to stream. And the streams are all globalized or more than half. Talk us through that. Yeah, so it's, it's more extreme than you suggest. So of the top 100 songs that radio played last year in Germany, zero, keine, nothing was German. Huh. It was all Anglo-American repertoire. And I had to present this to the German government in Hamburg last September, and the head of radio said, oh, we just have to sell adverts. Huh. Well, given that no one's listening to radio anymore, you're going to sell less adverts. Do you want me to show you how fast towards a cliff edge you are traveling to? Because this is not helping your cause. You look at streaming where the consumer is empowered with choice, where local artists can get to market with very little cost in their local mother tongue. 54 of the top 100 were in German, Mm. and the vast majority were being performed in German. Mm. So the free market of streaming, there's no regulation in streaming, has achieved what the regulated market of radio has failed, which is domestic prominence, which raises all sorts of questions. Yeah, but it's fascinating as well to think that there's kind of an analogy to food here in that you can go in almost any country in the world and you can see a Chinese restaurant or a pizza restaurant or an Indian restaurant or what have you, or a French restaurant. But ultimately, what people are really gravitating towards and voting for is the local cuisine that's near and dear to their hearts. Yep. I had to present this to one of the large of the Magnificent Seven tech companies that we discussed last week. And they came out with a term in terms of why is it happening? Let me just prelude this point by saying 
An economist helped uncover globalization. Now everyone's talking about yeah. it, but it's not for an economist to explain it. Give me an anthropologist, a sociologist, yes. a political scientist even could explain what I can, I can lay the baseline. It's for them to blow the horn on top. And their interpretation of what's going on, they came up with this beautiful term called a claustrophobia of abundance. Mm -hmm. That is kids today, Richard, when they roll out of bed in the morning, let's take a tween or a teen kid to which you know well, they roll out of bed, they have more power and choice on that smartphone yep. in their pocket Paradox of than choice. we had in our lifetimes. Yep. And when you have so much as a German 14-year-old, as a Polish 16-year-old or an Italian 17-year-old, and you're offered that much, that abundance of choice, you get claustrophobic. What you want is what's closest to home, ideally in your local mother tongue. Mm. And that is the most persuasive case I can tell you now about why, for a country like Britain, which is one of the few, one of only four net exporters of music in the world, Korea, America, and Sweden being the uppers, why, for a country like Britain, which has produced global pop stars for the past 60 years, that explains why we haven't produced a true stadium-filling pop star since Dua Lipa in 2017. Not Harry Styles? Predates Dua Lipa, I'm afraid. Okay. That was 2010. Okay. Now, it's been dry, but just to hold that point for a thought there, now that could be down to a bunch of factors. We're not doing anything wrong. It's just the market has changed. And German festivals are full of German bands singing in German, and Italian festivals Italian bands singing in Italian. Might also have something to do with Brexit, but I'll leave that one hanging. Leave that one hanging. And I want to wrap up with one further question on this. What's a fascinating topic because I want to wrap up several things that we've been talking about in past podcasts and you've just touched on here. If there's no longer that sort of clear pattern that the record labels would find the artist, would promote them and get them listened to globally. And that pattern was what the AI was supposed to be able to recognize and mimic, if you will, to mm -hmm. create the hit artists. Are we going to see artists coming all out of left field? Is the power of the distribution platforms of the record labels and the streaming companies now sort of set to inexorably wane the same way that there used to be tastemakers who was able to get on TV and that would determine who was known in the public consciousness and that doesn't have that kind of cachet anymore? Well... I'll answer this to tee up part two where we like to go down the rabbit hole. And I want to reach out to the finance part of our audience as well as those who like the music and media stuff by saying, you said last week, the scale of al algorithmic trading is now dictating the fortunes of the stock market. Essentially, algo was this rounding error. Now it's this big beast. Yeah. The machines have won. The exact same thing's happened in music. The exact same thing. If you thought human curators on radio had influence, well, you're 10 years out of date. If you thought human curators on streaming platforms had influence, well, you're one year out of date. What we've seen is the role of human platform choice, human curation, wane to the point of being insignificant. You know, literally having five figures, if you're lucky, audiences. The role of the algorithm in navigating all this choice, the role of automatic play features, we call it radio in our world, where your 10 song playlist finishes and the music keeps on playing. That's the market. That's the game that's in town. So it does feel like Terminator 2, the machines have won. The T-1000 beat up Arnie at the end. And yeah, it takes us to an interesting place in my world, where it's over to the algorithm to determine who wins and who loses. And in your world, Richard, where mm. algorithmic trading platforms are determining who wins and who loses. Well, I definitely want to pick up on that because 
I feel like in so many cases, the algos, the machines just still fall so short of what we get from human curation. But I want to go down the rabbit hole on that particular topic and a few others in the second part of this podcast about super fans and super stocks. And there's no better guide for that than Will Page, our rockonomist. We'll be back in a moment with more Bubble Trouble. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble, where I am grilling Will Page on the concept of superfans, a fascinating idea that we are going to reset the boundaries or the way in which the cake is divided in the music industry and start to do more and engage more with those people who are just mad for a particular artist or a particular genre of music. And Will, I want to start off by asking about how we hear so much about how this being a golden age of content creation. We've got all this new tech, enables all these new mashups and genre bending stuff. And we can even sing and play instruments where we never had the talent before. But when I look at a lot of leading companies in this space, whether it's Warner Music or Spotify or Universal Music, they're all laying off people. They're all, you know, telling you how great the music business is, but they seem to be struggling with it. Is there something about that fan power we talked about in the first part that's reshaping the way these companies have to think and operate? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've got copyright on the term getting ahead of your skis. So if I can pay you royalties here, I need to use that term here. I think the music industry has in the past got a little ahead of its skis. You have this famous slash infamous Goldman Sachs report, which says the music industry is going to be worth God knows how many gazillion dollars, and with some rather dubious methodology, it has to be said. Everyone bought into that, but what we're seeing now is saturation in the established markets. Indeed, friend of the show and hopefully a future guest, Mark Mulligan, his team at MIDI have done some fantastic work on subscriber numbers, and you can see it right there. Growth of subscribers is stalling in the Western markets, where the money is to be made. We're not seeing the revenues come from the emerging markets that we hoped for, that we had in our models. So I guess what the record labels are doing when you hear of job losses or even the streaming platforms is just getting headcount into checks to the new normal, where now growth is going to continue to being difficult. Okay. So I want to pick up on that question about emerging markets, because did we ever think that people in Nigeria or Egypt or or India or the Philippines or Indonesia would ever be paying 10 bucks a month? 
doesn't the purchasing power parity that you economists love so much tell you that, yes, indeed, it's going to be a buck a month and you're never going to get the kind of total pool of revenues out of those markets. And that's indeed why they're basically the top five or 10 markets of the music industry are 80 or 90 percent of the global revenue, right? Well, let me deal with India for a second. In terms of the money you are actually getting from there, I have this joke, which is not a joke, which is the RPU that you'd get from India can be confused with the per stream that you get in America or Britain. That is <laughs> yeah. a half penny per song. It's pretty much what you could get out of a customer per month in right. India. But there's some deep reasons for that. Conversion models, as you know, are like a train fare. The train to Scotland tomorrow is going to take four hours, 18 minutes, whether you pay £500 for your ticket or £100 for your ticket. The train takes the same journey time regardless. What makes you go first class is at the heart of a conversion question. Now, when data costs fell in India circa 2017, Geo, the company which produced it, and YouTube exploded, it made standard class in India pretty attractive. I was speaking to some wonderful lawyers from India only last week, and they were saying to me that now you've got Bollywood making movies for YouTube. Like it is such an ingrained part of the market. Standard class is so popular, it's very hard for anyone to go first class. So I think that's something that perhaps when we were ahead of our skis, we didn't factor into the emerging market equation. There are lots of users, but there's hardly any cash. And that leaves a bit of an overhang. One last finance point on that too, I just want to throw this out for the audience listening is, if you are in the media business, media platform business, perhaps, and you are operating in India, certain costs change. So cloud computing costs are a rounding area for a Western company. You know, they're a footnote and they're priced in Western dollars. You travel to India, Mm. that relative cost, you don't get purchasing power parity on cloud in India, you pay the Western value. All of a sudden that becomes a huge part of the expense, Mm. a wedge in the cost of goods. And that can result in cash burn. So I think there's a bit of a hangover. Not only did we get ahead of our skis, we woke up with a hangover when we saw the new cost structure that we have in these emerging markets. So that's not just one company, that's across all companies. So do you think the music industry was convincing itself that there was going to be what turned out to be a bubble? And the headcount well, Really? Cost, You've never used that word before. How do you spell that word? The headcount cuts they're making are a recognition that lying ahead of them, there may be trouble. Well, I think I used the term growth is going to be difficult. I actually learned that term from a colleague in Stockholm where every man, woman, cat, dog, and pet hamster has got a Spotify premium account. Growth is difficult. So there's never well, stopped growing. But it's, the hamsters breed quickly. Come on. But growth becomes difficult. It doesn't just hang off trees. And I think yeah. the CFOs and in industries beyond music here you're seeing headcount losses in lots of companies which operate in industries which look like they're booming. The CFOs have just said, we need to do a bit of belt tightening here. We got a little ahead of our skis, get our costs into line with projections revenues because it's not going to be that ruler which goes up and to the right that we read in the Goldman Sachs reports. Gee, funny that. We've never seen those sort of reports before. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Let me tell you no, what they I'll, look like. Yeah, yeah. It's just just go to 2030 and it'll all be fine. Now, all this comes <laughs> along before you get the game changer of AI. Are you still a true believer that we're going to get some form of AI, which is going to obviate half or more of what these distributors and record companies do? I am a little bit torn on this one. Part of me says the content that AI creates doesn't compete with humans. It just 
doesn't. Okay. Yeah. It's novel. It's trivial. It's something to discuss at the dinner table after listening to Bubble Trouble, but it doesn't compete with humans. You can't right. look at a, a piano and call it software. Okay. So just stop that. Yeah. If a cannibal eats with a fork, I'm not calling that progress. We're not going to go down that path. But on the other side, if we go back to something we discussed at the first part, and again, I want to stress to the audience, this is not just specific to music. This is across media and beyond. But have a think about the way that we allocate the money, typically, that pro rata model, that pool of cash. You compete for the clock. Remember, I gave you the example of you're the heavy user and the light user. Yeah. What if heavy usage music can be created with the AI? What about focus music or sleep music? What if you had every student today studying to focus music that was AI created that allowed them to get an A plus in their exams? They're hitting eight hours a day of revision time listening to music that could be cheap to create. I think there's a huge backdoor opportunity for AI music to disrupt the market, not by getting to the top of the charts and becoming household names. No, park that. Mm. But by chewing up the clock of consumption for giving you what we could call mood music, music for a purpose. Yeah, I guess I struggle with that a little bit because, and I struggle also with the notion that we're losing this value of human curation because I do listen to a lot on, for example, BBC Radio 6, where they have excellent playlists to focus and ambient music playlists that are great to have in the background and they're human curated and they have phenomenal DJs with encyclopedic knowledge of music that bring me stuff that I know the algos will never surface to me. And I guess, am I just being that little bit more discerning? Am I paying attention to it? Am I willing to make the extra effort to seek it out? I don't know, but I do feel like a lot of what I get from the algos and the queued up next automatic playlist is kind of disappointing, leaves me flat, where I'd almost welcome the introduction of someone who really knows what they're doing to take me in a slightly different direction. Yeah. I mean, long story short, an algorithm can't get you out of your comfort zone because right. all it knows is your comfort zone. I think that's at the very heart of this debate here. And that also might explain a bit of localization. The algorithm mm. knows that Richard Kramer in Munich, German-speaking Richard Kramer, likes German music, so let's just give you more German music. Richard Kramer might really enjoy exploring high life or exploring French music from the 1920s. He could be a whole lot more eclectic than the algorithm presumes. In fact, Hagar Grazer from Platoon, an Apple-owned company, I was allowed to quote her in the globalization paper, a fantastic woman, inspiration to me, where she said, the algorithm does not understand that we want to become global citizens. That's deep. Yeah. It's a fascinating insight to think that the reason why you have all Italian music in the Italian charts or all German music in the German charts or the Polish charts or the French charts is because that is what the algo is feeding you again right. and again and again. So let's turn that to you, Richard. Can we relate that to the stock market for the finance folks in the audience? I mean, the algo trading is based on history and based on history that it's been fed. Surely the key to being a stock market picker is spotting that that black swan that's over there, that outlier that's off the bell curve. Well, you say that, but there is an overlay for a lot of investors, maybe not so much retail investors, but certainly large investors, where there's a requirement to have a certain amount of liquidity. And a lot of the problem with very smaller stocks is that let's just imagine that the management or founders or large owners ha own half the stock and the company doesn't have a very large market value. And the other half is held by a variety of funds, retail investors who forgot it's in their portfolio or what have you. It just doesn't trade enough. And one of the reasons why these 
very large cap stocks are so talked about so much is because anyone can trade in and out of them in any size at any time. They have the liquidity. And in the same way as there's only a few set of, small set of artists, they'll be in the global conversation of who you want to listen to because they have the recognition around the world. We don't have the mental space to to know about 100 or 200 of those global artists. We know about 10 or 20 of them. We treat the stock market the same way. There are a few dozen stocks that we that are capturing the top attention that are those super fan super stocks that we all kind of pay attention to. So last week you talked about the Russell, was it 1,000 or Russell 2,000? So an algorithm might be trained to explore what's in the Russell 2,000. A human might spend 80% of their time looking at the Russell 2,000 stocks, but 20% saying, who's outside and is about to come in? Wouldn't you value the human instinct of that approach versus the echo chamber of the algorithmic approach? No, because the number one thing a human needs to do looking at 2,000 stocks is start screening them looking at them on various valuation metrics, growth metrics, profitability metrics, and trying to figure out out of 2,000 stocks, because that's a lot of hours and a lot of days to look at a lot of stocks, to figure out which of them might be interesting investments, which is why they tend to get broken down by sector, by people think about various factors that are impacting companies, whether they're cyclical or secular growth stories whether they're value or they're highly val- uh, much more highly rated, but indeed more risky. So there's all sorts of parameters you need to apply before you can get to a reasonable subset of stocks to look at. But that then brings me back to an algorithm can't get you out of your comfort zone. But maybe, <laughs> could we be just scraping the surface of a Nobel Prize winning piece of work here? Maybe neither can the human The problem is choice. When you have a lot of choice, humans compartmentalize that choice, as does an algorithm. And maybe it's the case that the machines won because they're better at doing what humans were trying to do in the first place, which is build a comfort zone and operate within it. But I do worry that the machines are winning in both of our worlds. And I do wonder, do we miss something? Do we leave something behind by allowing that to happen? Well, the difference between your world and the world of the markets is that the world of the markets operate on a certain logic whereby if 10 stocks are half of the market, no one can just simply ignore them. Whereas if there are 10 big global artists, but you know what? I really like classical and jazz and none of those are going to be classical or jazz. I can completely ignore those 10 artists, but it's kind of hard to stand aside from a stock market where literally all the performance is coming from seven tech stocks and say, you know what? I don't really like tech. I, I, I just, I'd rather invest in utilities and get good performance. <laughs> so anyhow, I'm going to flip something back over to you because you are off to do a little iron pumping. You're going to flex your muscles in Brussels. You're going to go see the EU policymakers. And I, just as a starting point, I want to say from a stock market perspective, the EU is tech toast. I mean, the US has more trillion dollar companies than Europe has hundred billion dollar companies. Oh, can I steal that one? So the Europe has $200 billion companies and the US has multiple trillion dollar companies and dozens of $100 billion companies. It just, the fact is there just aren't the global leaders in tech coming from Europe. There's ASML and SAP are over a hundred billion. After that, it gets, ranks get pretty thinned out. Now, 
I don't know what the Brussels policymakers or bureaucrats can really do about this, but what I want to know is what are you there to tell them about? What are you, what's your message to them? Well, they're looking at music and media markets across their respective countries. I think there's four agendas they have. Some of them are, yeah, some Only of them four. are, meh, and others are, God, please, no. So on the yeah front, they want to make sure there's action taken against bad actors on platforms. Mm-hmm. Bad actors in stock markets, bad actors in streaming, they want to clamp down on Ford. Good luck. Put wind in your sail. Another yeah would be they want a responsible AI. So if you look at copyright law around Europe, the word training does not appear. But if training equals copying, the old rules apply. So that should be covered off too. Bit meh, they want fair remuneration for authors. So are they arguing that artists should see less? Are they arguing that platforms should see less? But there's some lobbying work going on there. And then the God please no point is they want to make algorithms transparent which I don't understand. So if you want to make an algorithm transparent, it means everyone can game it. And by the way, it's the company's intellectual property. So I don't quite understand where they're going with that one. So that's my kind of, I have to tiptoe across these four policy agendas as I address the parliament. First time I've gone back to Brussels since Brexit. And your audience, will they understand algorithms? Will they understand the nitty-gritty of dividing up the spoils in music markets? And will they be deep in the weeds or are they just, frankly, looking for you to tell them what to do? Well, that's where I have to deploy everything that my dad taught me when I was 11, which is learn how to teach economics to an audience who A, doesn't think they can understand it, B, probably doesn't want to understand it, but C, has to. So my dad gave me that lesson when I was 11 and I need to deploy that lesson in Brussels on Wednesday, on Valentine's Day. It's my Valentine's Day massacre, Richard. <laughs> oh my goodness, you are going to be, well, I think you're going to be massacring the, their their ears with your dulcet Scottish tones, which they hope they would hear the last yeah. of, given they, they <laughs> saw the UK walk away from Europe. Well, uh, the opening slide does say, by the way, Scotland voted 73.6% remain. So I just right. want to say, it's good to be back. <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to be opening that debate. Now I want to get into smoke signals, but I want to Focus it really on, on this idea of super fans, because when you hear super anything, you're like, well, why shouldn't we just be talking about fans? Why shouldn't we just be talking about the normal changes in the market? This, these screaming fans that would pack Shea Stadium to see the Beatles in the 60s or, you know, mm-hmm. the, or Elvis in the 50s. I mean, we've had these super fans for a long time. What, when you hear about labels talking about super fans and that it's going to change the nature of the relationship between fans and artists, what are the things that just make you face palm, shake your head and say, oh, these are real smoke signals? So I've got two prepared for you for this one. Uh, First one's an overarching statement. The second one's going to go a little deeper, but I'm interested in this concept of the resistance factor and The copyright for this one belongs not with Rich Kramer, but with a previous guest, wonderful brain, Paul Sanders. We call him the David Hume of the music industry. But he said there's a default setting for consumers of content to do nothing with it. That is, watch, binge watch Griselda on Netflix, fine, and then switch off. Does anyone know that you watched it? Did you tell anybody at the water cooler the next day that you watched it? We don't know. You did nothing other than passively consume content. Plice of so much stuff. The books that you read, and you read books faster than I can, and you run faster than I can. 
So what breaks down the resistance factor? So when I hear people talking about super fans that makes me cringe, it's because they're failing to understand the default setting for most fans is to pull their phone out of their pocket, press play, put it back in their pocket, and that alone is their engagement with the content. That took three seconds. Right. And that's the reality, people. So don't say to me, super fans, if they consume visual content with their phone for all of three seconds so they can hit the play button in the right space. Just, this, it just, yeah, just to get a number on it, what percentage of total listening is done by super fans? People who are obsessively listening to hours of a particular artist in a month? I would say that there'll be long tails within most fans' bases. I listen to a few artists a lot and many artists little. That's common sense. But rather than answer it, let me destroy the answer, which is if the machines have won and algorithmic playlists are taking over, it does break down that distribution. We travel more. And I think the right answer is to quote David Bowie from 2001, where he said, music will become like water flowing out of tap. Mm. I mean, listen to music all day. Ask me to name one artist. I can't. It's just right. in the background. I was once told that radio works when you're not aware that it's there. And I think that's what right. music has become. Right. If I can then take that resistance factor just a, a step further, sure, it, it's just the value of comments. A comment is a signal from a fan that watching that video on YouTube meant more than just passively consuming. They've self-selected and signaled this mattered to me because they've taken the time to comment. Comments mm. are beautiful to read now. Google yeah. did some very clever moderation of removing defamatory and vulgar words from the comments. But to hear that this song helped this complete stranger in Brazil get through their divorce, or to hear this performance of The Who helped this guy in Pittsburgh you know, go through his university years, wow, get me closer to the music. And if I can wrap that one up by quoting what Marty Diamond, the biggest touring agent in the world, said to me, Marty Diamond tours Ed Sheeran and Coldplay. Can you imagine the size of that business? And he said to me, there's all these data, there's all these metrics, it's all this choice. The only thing I'm left to trust is your comments to views ratio on YouTube. Bingo. Because that's that how you know people about, care. Yeah. It's a you've sign got 100 million care. views and you've got five comments. Well, a lot of people have watched and thought you sucked. I might have 1 million views and 400,000 comments. Not that many people watch me, but most of them cared. Are we dealing with quantity or quality here? Right. What a beautiful little lesson to maybe wrap up the show with is comments per views. Anyone can do it. It's just arithmetic. But it says this many people broke down the resistance factor to do something as opposed to nothing. I think it's a very telling signal. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see in somewhere where I watch the contents obsessively, which is on the Financial Times, that the authors of the articles come back and have a engage in a dialogue with some of yeah. the commenters. And the it's article brilliant. in the FT, FT friend of the show, participants of the show, but their articles are world-class. The comments just are the icing on the cake. Fantastic. They're always great. And Will, you've been terrific today helping us understand this concept of super fans in the music industry. It is your bailiwick. It is your metier. And I... I feel bad for those folks in Brussels because their heads are going to be spinning when you're done with them on Valentine's Day. So thanks very much for an enlightening episode of Bubble Trouble. We'll be back next week with lots more to discuss. Thanks, Will, and thanks everyone for listening. 
If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.